This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. A web of manipulation and terrifying abuse. If he'd have said to do anything, I would have done it. With a powerful religious figure at its centre. There was no safe place. You don't say no to him. World of Secrets from the BBC World Service is back with a brand new season. Investigating allegations surrounding the preacher, TB Joshua. The culture of secrecy needs to be broken. Search for World of Secrets wherever you get your BBC podcasts. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. This is In Our Time from BBC Radio 4 and this is one of more than a thousand episodes you can find on BBC Sounds and on our website. If you scroll down the page for this edition, you can find a reading list to go with it. I hope you enjoyed the programme. Hello, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night is one of the great comedies of world literature, toying with the space between marriage, love and desire. By convention, a wedding means a happy ending and here there are three, but Orsino and Viola... Olivia and Sebastian know little of each other's true identity, only just revealed at the end. And their hopes and illusions are framed by the fury of Malvolio, tricked into trusting his mistress loved him and who swears revenge, and perhaps these particular marriages will prove their own revenge. With me to discuss Twelfth Night are Pascal Abisher, Professor of Shakespeare and Early Modern Performance Studies at the University of Exeter, Michael Dobson, Professor of Shakespeare Studies and Director of the Shakespeare Institute at the University of Birmingham, and Emma Smith, Professor of Shakespeare Studies at Hartford College, University of Oxford. Emma Smith, the action of the plays located in Illyria, to what extent is, is this a totally imaginary place? All Shakespeare's locations are to some extent imaginary, they're theatrical, they're the boards of the the stage. But Illyria, uh, which we hear about from Viola, what country friends is this? This is Illyria Lady. Illyria did have real-world connotations. It was a maritime republic centred around Ragusa, now Dubrovnik, so on the Adriatic coast. It was an important trading post between uh, the Venetian Empire and the, the Ottomans. So it's a really good location, not just for the maritime plot of Twelfth uh, Night, but also the themes, I think, of exchange and transformation and connection. Can you develop that? Why is it such an ideal plot? Well, what happens in the play is that the inhabitants of, of Illyria are disrupted and transformed by uh, outside agents by the intervention of Viola first shipwrecked uh, on the shore and her twin brother Sebastian. So what we get in a way is is Illyria as a place affected by, transformed by transfer and and exchange uh, across its own borders. Yes. Um, Now this is a tough one for you. Could you please give us a summary of the plot? I'd love to. (laughs) (laughs) So we meet uh, our Illyrians with Orsino, the Duke, who is in love with Olivia. She is not in love with him. And into this situation comes Viola, shipwrecked, as we've, as we've just heard. She believes her brother, twin brother Sebastian, has been drowned and she decides to enter Orsino's household in the guise of a male servant, Cesario. Orsino is immediately very drawn to Cesario and he sends 
him, her, the pronouns become more complicated as we go on. He sends him, her, to be an embassy on his behalf to Olivia. Olivia promptly falls in love with the messenger. And once we hear that Cesario, him, herself, is also in love with Orsino, we've got the triangle set up. And, of course, uh, the person who's going to put that right is the undrowned twin, Sebastian, who reappears with his companion, Antonio. And this plot is interwoven with a sort of what's sometimes seen as a below-stairs plot in Olivia's household. We see Olivia's uh, waiting gentlewoman, Maria, her disreputable uncle, Toby Belch, uh, and the jester, sort of rather melancholic jester, Feste, uh, turn on the punctilious steward Malvolio and they uh, convince Malvolio that Olivia is in love with him and that joke uh, for many goes from being perhaps rather funny to being rather cruel and that plot and those marriage plots are all twined together in in a long final scene of, of revelation. Yes, Pascal, the women who are very powerful in this play are all played by boys Yes, absolutely. So there's an extra frisson before we get into the complications. There's an extra frisson by that going on all the time. And, and that is what becomes really interesting in relation to the plot line that, that Emma has just taken us through. When we have uh, Viola cross-dressed as Cesario, what we have, in fact, is a boy actor who is cross-dressed as a woman and who cross-dresses then as a boy. And through all those layers, you can, you can see the fluctuations of, of gender happening. And the audience always probably sees uh, the female and the male character at the same time. So, the, you know, the play talks at several points. There are references to changeable taffeta or an opal uh, or, or a cheval glove that can be turned inside out or, or a natural perspective uh, that, that shows you two things at once. All of those metaphors of seeing two things at the same time. It's a bit like a Grecian urn. Yes, it is brilliant, isn't it? And it's full of fine lines, like the first line. If music be the food of love, play on. Now, is it if music be the food of love or if music be the food of love? Which is it? I think it can be both. (laughs) Uh, But I think the more important thing is the bit that you left out, which is give me excess of it. That surfeiting, the appetite may sicken and so die. So Mm. it's, it's... you know, that we like to quote the first half of the line, um, but it is com- incomplete without the second half, which is all about the fact that the reason why we want to have m- more music and more love is so that we can finally stop having quite so much music and quite so much love (laughs) because you know at the very beginning of the play there is already a sense of exhaustion of sort of having arrived and and that's what the the title Twelfth Night to some extent I think references having arrived at the end of, of a period of festivity when you are tired of feasting but you're not quite ready to give it up yet so you're going to have one final amazing excess that will then allow you to be just sick of it and then move back into a sort of normal phase of life uh, and back into January Does that line play through the play as it were? Absolutely, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a play that is very carefully poised between excess and control 
and the the sense that you can push things too far and that at some point you just have to stop. Michael Michael Dobson, how does it fit into Shakespeare's work as a whole, this play? Well, it's his last Elizabethan comedy. <coughs> it's the last comedy he's going to write where we can feel really confident that there's anything very cheerful likely to happen after the ending for anybody much. His next comedy is going to be Measure for Measure. After that, All's Well That Ends Well. Uh, things are going to get even more visibly difficult after this. He's, it's about the same time he writes Hamlet. Twelfth Night sort of loops back to sh- things Shakespeare's done in comedies before. I mean, his first comedy is probably Two Gentlemen of Verona, which to us now looks like a sort of muffed first draft of Twelfth Night. It's got the girl dressed as a page boy who winds up trying to woo her you know, beloved's girl that she doesn't want him to win. Uh, comedy of Errors, the other twins play. But it's sort of got to the end of comedy. To some extent, this is Shakespeare beginning to push the form beyond which it's just not going to work for him anymore. And the next big place he's going to write are tragedies. The Othello, Trollis and Cressida are coming up pretty soon. Was Twelfth Night, the idea of twins and so on, was that based on anything or did it... There's a lot of source stories about twins that Shakespeare's interested in or about brothers and sisters who look alike. I think it's important that the story that Shakespeare's following most closely when he writes Twelfth Night is a thing called Apollonius and Scylla, in which it's a brother and sister who aren't twins but look alike. Uh, And there's a lot that Shakespeare takes takes from this, this other play about uh, a girl who runs away because in pursuit of a man she fancies, winds up disguised as a male servant, uh, and whose brother, who looks like him, winds up sleeping with uh, the woman that the girl was sent to woo on her beloved's behalf. Uh, But in Apollonius and Scylla, the Olivia character actually gets pregnant before the denouement, which is a a huge and significant difference. Yeah, there's not much fertility in Twelfth Night. Yeah. I mean, Shakespeare's children, you know, we, it's, it's always pointed out, Shakespeare's children were twins, a boy and a girl, uh, and the boy had died. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's quite easy for biographers to say, oh, well, you know, Viola saying, I, my brother, know yet living in my glass. You know, this sense of trying to be the lost brother you know, must have had some kind of poignancy for Shakespeare, we assume. Uh, but certainly it's striking that he makes this into a play about twins, whereas the main source story is not a play about twins. Yes. In the middle of this fluency of love and lost love and, uh, and death and so on, there's the great entrance of and presence of Malvolio. Mm. Um, can you tell the listeners something about him? Because he is... Just, Despite all the wonderful things between everybody else, he's the big cheese yeah. in a way. He's the part you want yeah. if you're being cast in Twelfth Night. He's the character who is in a comedy and doesn't know he's in a comedy and refuses to be in a comedy and doesn't approve of comedy. His main job in Olivia's household is to be the only person who seems to want to keep order. Yeah, there's no older generation apart from Sir Toby Belch. Because the household contains Toby Belch yeah, and, and, and Ray Duchenko. And, and they, their main activity is getting drunk and, yeah, and causing yeah, riots. Yeah, yeah. And, and Olivia's father's dead, her brother's dead. She's just got this upper servant, Malvolio, who dresses in sombre black, 
who wears a steward's chain of office to show that he's supposed to be in, in command, and who who doesn't approve when they keep him awake singing drunken songs in the middle of the night. Can I just ask Emma, can we um, take that on with you and ask you why he becomes so appealing to audiences? It's really extraordinary, isn't it? Because as Michael's just described it, he looks like the anti-comic figure who, you know, is is out of place, a fish out of water. But for early audiences, for early 17th century audiences, the play seems to have been known as Malvolio. He is tricked. Mm into believing that his mistress is deeply in love with him and made to do foolish things, the cross-gartering and so on and so forth. So yes. that's where he is. Okay. Yes, so in part I think what's it's so enjoyable about him is the way he plays the scapegoat figure. He's, 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 a, he's a target for all kinds of uh, violent energies uh, in, in the play. For instance? If you're interested in the idea of comedy as a form of cruelty, uh, you know, that, co- that comedy is... Uh, actually uh, a sometimes barely sublimated kind of violence. We see that very clearly here. And we've talked about the Twelfth Night part of the title, but there's a second title to this play, which is always given in the 17th century, Twelfth Night or What You Will. And there are, Shakespeare loves the pun on will. The sonnets are full of it. Will means everything, including his own name, of course. But that title... Uh, one of the ways that title, I think, resonates is by turning back to the audience their own desires. What do they want to see? And some of the cruelty that's uh, that's directed at Malvolio has to come back on us. We wanted it. We laughed. Uh, we laughed and we encouraged them. We encouraged this uh, bullying kind of violent world to go further and further and further in its cruelty towards him. Pascal, can you give us one or two instances of this cruelty? Malvolio is is a character who has um, desires like everybody else and I think that's a really key point here because other characters also fall in love with people or marry people who are above their station within the play and they are not punished for that whereas Malvolio has equivalent ambitions and desires but It's almost as though in order for the other characters to be able to succeed, for Maria to be able to marry Sir Toby, for Sebastian, uh, the Viola's twin brother, to be able to marry the Countess Olivia, for them to succeed, you need to have a scapegoat, some, some whipping boy whom you can punish cruelly for transgressing in that same way. Why is that? It's... Almost as though the the play is a, is a way of exorcising that desire to rise in social station. So you know, go, going back to this idea of of the opening line, you were, you were asking me earlier, does it go all the way through the play? This idea of excess and surfeiting. There is a sense that you need to push that desire to an extreme in one character, so that you can do almost a bloodletting exercise, whereby you then you know, you punish this person and then that that excess is gone and has been purged from the the body of the society. So examples of, of being cruel to Malvolio, obviously it's 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 the idea that he is made to, to make a fool of himself in front of the person he most tries to impress, Olivia. And th- then he is put into a dark room and and gaslit by 
or, or, or the people who are trying to taunt him in, into thinking of himself as almost mad and then that that humiliation is publicly revealed in front of everybody in the play. He's, and been, the, he's been tormented by picking up a letter which he's supposedly from her it, to him. From her to him. And he believes it and does yes. what the letter says, which is he has to do absurd things. He has to do absurd things which involve um, coming out in ridiculous clothes, so yellow stockings, which is a colour that Olivia abhors, and, and cross-gartered, which is a, which is a sort of old school master fashion that that she absolutely detests um he's also and i think this is particularly cruel he's such a serious man i mean michael's been talking about how he he's is dressed in his chain of office and uh, and in black clothes uh, and he's instructed to smile <laughs> and Th- that must cost him so much because he is not used to smiling. And and there's this wonderful, wonderful moment when he picks up the letter and he's read it and he's sort of worked out that it's probably about him. And he says, I am happy. And I mean, my heart breaks. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a man who is experiencing what it is to be wanted and and cherished for what he he is, and to be appreciated for the first time in his life. And everybody is laughing at this happiness. And the, the horrible thing is that the audience is absolutely complicit in this. The audience is laughing along with his tormentors. And there is a sense that we keep going along with a joke even when it's no longer funny. And so Toby himself at some point says, you know, I've, I've had enough of this. This is, I, I wish we could end this joke because it's, you know, I'm in so much trouble now with my, with my niece. Um, uh, and this is, this is no longer funny. And so it's that excess at the end that leads to Malvio Leo just being, wounded beyond repair and there is a real sense at the end of the play that we've got to a point in that plot line where there is no reparation that is possible so even though people explain why they've done it they they don't apologize it's not really fashionable to apologize in in early modern england Um, but they try to explain but it's not good enough and where when malvolio then turns around on his final line saying, I will be revenged on the whole pack of you. He's really representing himself as a bear who's been tied to a stake and who's been, who's been baited, mm. not just by the people on stage, but also by the audience. So I think that that final line is just cast out at the entire crowd in the theatre. Do we have a sense in this play that it's without boundaries? There's certainly a sense that... And what does that mean? Well, there are a lot of people in the world of this play who don't seem to have any particular responsibilities uh, and who seem to spend their time just indulging themselves. Orsino has been single since Violet was 13, the Count. Yeah. Yeah, he's supposed to be in charge of Illyria and all we see him doing is going off to lie around in flowery bowers listening to too much music and, and... indulging this idea of himself as the great spurned lover of Elizabethan poetry. Viola is becomes a kind of passive spectator of the story that happens to her. 
Sebastian spends three months living with a pirate under an assumed name, doing nothing in particular, as far as we can see, certainly not looking very actively for his sister, uh, unlike his counterpart in the story that Shakespeare probably has in front of him while he's writing the play. There's sort of not enough to do in Illyria. Even, you know, Satobi is just getting drunk on, on Sarandia Ague Cheek's money. They can devise little sports for themselves. <coughs> Fabian has tried to arrange a bear baiting in the past, but that seems to be the most that's happened, apart from memories of this trade war where there was this violence in which Antonio, the sailor, Sebastian's rescuer, was involved, during which you know, Orsino's nephew Titus lost his leg. So there's no older generation, as I, as I said earlier. The only, there's a police force who recognise Antonio, but most of these characters are at their own disposal. They don't have parents telling them who to marry. They can fancy anybody they like. Um, and that seems to create more problems than it solves. A web of manipulation and terrifying abuse. If he'd have said to do anything, I would have done it. With a powerful religious figure at its centre. There was no safe place. You don't say no to him. World of Secrets from the BBC World Service is back with a brand new season. Investigating allegations surrounding the preacher, TB Joshua. The culture of secrecy needs to be broken. Search for World of Secrets wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Emma, um, there's physical violence as well as mental torment, isn't there? There is. We just heard a bit about about that, the background of this piratical uh, sea battle. We have a, a, f uh, a fight, uh, a duel organised between two very unlikely combatants, uh, Cesario, Sir Viola's uh, male uh, persona, and Sir Andrew Aguecheek. Uh, they're both being stirred up to think the other is a, a violent monster and there's a sort of satire on masculine forms of, of duelling, I think, there. But when Sebastian comes in, he does knock heads together and uh, Sir Toby in particular leaves the stage for the last time uh, asking for a surgeon with his head broken, broken in uh, by, by Sebastian. And so there's violence beneath the surface uh, and really that, that comes out, as we've heard, in the plot against Malvolio, but it comes out in quite a violent way of expressing love in that opening scene that we've talked about a bit already. Orsino uh, talks about his desires like uh, Fell and, and the savage hounds pursuing him so that he's going to be, you know, sort of consumed by his own desires. And at the end of the play, in this wonderful series of, of revelations, when it, he thinks that Cesario has married Olivia... In fact, Cesario is the, Cesario is the page. It's, we need to keep it all straightened in our minds, don't we? changed person. <laughs> yes. Uh, so Cesario is Viola as the male uh, page. He, Orsino, thinks that his page has married Olivia and he is in a violent fury. It's the, it's the nearest, it's the first he comes to acknowledging his own feelings, not in fact for Olivia, as he thought, but for, for Cesario. So love and, and violence... You know, desire is quite a violent capacity uh, here. It's a version of these more explicit forms of physical violence that we get elsewhere in the play. Yes. 
Thank you. Michael, Michael Dobson, can we concentrate for a few moments on, on the, mo- the most something specific, the interaction between Duke Orsino and Viola? These are some of the great intimate moments in the play. I mean, the, the electricity between Orsino and Cesario, rather than Viola, because he doesn't know it's Viola, uh, and so the you scene, better remind the listeners, they could be getting a little confused. The electricity <laughs> between Orsino and the disguised Viola, whom he thinks is a page boy, possibly even a eunuch called Cesario, uh, is, you know, this, is, this is something that viewers of this play really, really value, the sense that those two, that we know Viola desires him, she says so from... You know, the first time he sends her off to to try and chat up Olivia for so him. So she sent as an ambassador. She is sent really. as an ambassador to Olivia, and yet a Barthel Strife, who may I woo myself, would be his wife. You know, she she wants Orsino. Uh, we know that she is speaking, as it were, through a mask. That she yeah. doesn't. She wants to maintain her disguise, but she would like to tell him that she desires him. Uh, this produces a kind of complicity in the audience in watching these scenes uh, and in enjoying this kind of suppressed eroticism that's going on in them that way. Um, Orsino himself is extremely drawn to Cesario. We're told this by his his other servants, Valentine and Curio, that that he seems to want to spend lots of time alone with Cesario, confiding in Cesario, showing Cesario what a great lover he is. They listen to beautiful romantic music together. They're always on the point of possibly touching each other, but not quite. And there's a very similar electricity pervades the scenes between Olivia and Cesario, who are, you know, clearly there's there's more going on than just the necessity of the plot would dictate. Thank you. Emma, Emma Smith, this has been touched on as well, but let's go into it, if you would, a bit further. The, the uh, social status of those involved. That's very important. Could you give the listeners a few guidelines there? I think that is really important. The first stage direction in the play is enter or see no Duke of Illyria. <laughs> so we're very clearly told we're, we're in the, you know, this is where we are, this is where we're, um, this is where we're, we find ourselves. Uh, when Olivia is so drawn to Cesario, Viola disguised as Cesario, she immediately says, what is your parentage? So she's just thinking, could this be? Is this possible? Um, you know, that, that, that wouldn't seem to us the most important thing to find out, but it is, it is for her. And Viola is also very keen to say, you know, I'm, I'm acting as a sort of servant or a go-between, but I'm worth more than this. She disdains the offer of any money and says, I am no feed post lady, you know. Watch it. What's being established is that these are... Uh, couples, these are people whose social status is is equivalent, and that will make an appropriate marriage. I think what's so interesting about the Malvolio plot is how firmly it it punishes the social mobility, the upward mobility, which is Malvolio's attempt to marry his uh, his, his mistress. So um, when we get um, when Orsino and Cesario Viola come together at the end, Orsino jokingly says, "You will be uh, your master's mistress." Malvolio uh, would like to be his mistress's master, and that is really not going to happen. Um, And everything about his desire for Olivia is very carefully pointed in terms of transgression of social status. 
this is a play which can uh, enjoy, can flirt with, as we've heard from Michael, all this same-sex eroticism or almost same-sex eroticism, uh, can flirt with all these different kinds of romantic possibilities, but not, I think, the one that transgresses social status. In the letter, they write to Malvolio, it's so wonderfully, it's a very, very famous line, isn't it? Some are born great. I think the play says, yeah, some are born great. I think the following bits... Some achieve greatness and some have greatness thrust upon them. I think that's part of the cruel joke. Mm. That doesn't happen. Uh, Pascal, what, let's, let's turn to Viola and Cesario's wooing of uh, Olivia. If Viola Cesario, one person, it's a, a boy turned into a woman, uh, the woman then turns into a boy, a young man, and the young man is sent to be an ambassador to get somebody to marry his... Uh, and uh, uh, and is, is getting to impersonate his yeah. master. So you have right. you have yet another layer of disguise in in the sense that he is he she they <laughs> <laughs> are representing somebody else's voice in that scene. Yeah. So you you have the the boy actor playing a girl, playing a boy, playing his master. <laughs> and yes, so so he he goes into this scene um, uh, and, and it's, it's very well prepared because you have characters beforehand announcing the arrival of this fair young gentleman um, and, and the word fair uh, denotes beauty, attractiveness whiteness as well that is, a, is that something that um, is, is sort of there as, as part of that discourse of who might be attractive uh, as, a, as a match for Olivia and so this character is already announced as somebody who is who is eminently suitable for Olivia uh, and is new <laughs> it's got the advantage of, of being not the same old messenger from Orsino but somebody fresh and new uh, and very young um, and so the, this this messenger comes into this scene and is trying to deliver their message, which is a learned by heart, very conventional message of love. But they're thrown completely by the fact that Olivia is there veiled and uh, Cesario suddenly doesn't know whether whether they are addressing the right person or the wrong person, whether they're talking to the lady of the house or the or the gentlewoman who is with the lady of the house. Um, and, and that leads to a moment where that um, learnt by heart, very sort of generic, poetic approach that they're trying at first breaks down when they're saying, oh, can I, can I see your face? And Olivia is, is sort of taken aback by that request to reveal her face and then there's this absolutely magical theatrical moment where Olivia lifts the veil and reveals her face now she, she talks about her face as a picture and and she talks about the the veil as a curtain and so you have a reference there to to pictures that were often hidden with dust sheets if you like curtains um, but there's also a, a genre of the, the erotic pi picture that might be hidden by a curtain and that you might show to 
um, uh, an amateur of such images. So you have you have Olivia actually revealing herself almost as an erotic display to Cesario and uh, and in a sort of parodic mode goes you know the, have you seen you know I've got I've got the eyes I've got the cheeks I've got the lips it's all there have you seen enough and uh, Viola stroke Cesario responds very spontaneously to that and very authentically and suddenly we are out of that sort of uh, learnt by heart register and into a register of authenticity when uh, when Cesario answers, well, it's, it's excellently done. If God did all. <laughs> it's like, is it painted? Mm. Is this makeup or is it for real? Because you are really, really beautiful. And that is very annoying because I, I am sort of realising that I don't stand a chance against you mm. um, for Orsino's love. But, but at the same time, for, for Olivia, actually being appreciated spontaneously for her beauty um, is, is something that then makes her flick from the prose that she's been using up to that moment in the scene into verse as she suddenly sort of transforms herself and matches Viola then in, in a more poetic register which is more authentic than what the scene starts with and so you, you, have, a, you have a moment of, of real sort of um, change of mood as Olivia falls in love with uh, the cross-dressed Viola. Although Twelve Night seems to be set in a faraway exotic place, the play's in London. So where does that take us? Well, it, it takes us to the London uh, of the turn of the century, a place which is full of um, entertainments such as bear baiting, which is referenced at repeated points in the in the play. Um, it's also a place uh, where there are suburbs that are that that are directly pointed at in the the, the text when uh, Antonio sends Sebastian to go sightseeing in the suburbs, and you have specific places like the Elephant Inn on Bankside that are signposted as places where Sebastian should go and and. You know, stay. Uh, it turns out it's it used to be a brothel as well as an inn. So it's a very interesting place to be sent to. Um, it's also in the neighbourhood of of where the Globe was standing. So the audience would have a very direct um, signpost to their own environment, and and they would realise that the play, which is supposedly in this Illyria, is also in London. Uh, with so many distinctive features, including noble households and the types of customs that take place in recognisably late Elizabethan noble households. Thank you. Michael, Michael Dobson, um, does Puritanism play a part in this, uh, in this dance? Certainly the ghost of it does. Malvolio is described by Maria as a sort of Puritan, then she goes back on that a couple of lines later and says, well, the devil of Pur Puritan he, he is. It's really just an affectation, she says, like, like the way he memorises things to say about contemporary politics and then recites them to try to impress people, that he's a time server, that Puritanism is a kind of fashion for him. But the play is interested in notions of heresy and doctrine. Uh, when Malvolio is 
tricked into behaving weirdly and he's then locked up as a madman the interrogation he gets what's supposed to be a sort of medical diagnosis is delivered by Feste impersonating a clergyman who actually questions him about doctrine asks him what he thinks about the transmigration of souls uh, and Olivia earlier when she's rejecting uh, Viola Cesario's um, attempt to re repeat Orsino's vows of love says you know it's heresy you know, and, and you know, th there's a, a sense that these characters are allowed to think and believe certain things, or they play with ideas about what you're allowed to think uh, and not think. Malvolio is conveniently puritanical, whether he's a Puritan or not, whether he th we think he's sincerely uh, a Calvinist who thinks that the Church of England or any church should throw out uh, what's perceived to be idolatry in the way of Catholic practices. Certainly some of the specific things that Malvolio wants to prohibit are things that uh, Puritans did want to prohibit, uh, bear-baiting. Uh, and um, when Satobi says, in a line that's both kind of socially snobbish and theologically precise, um, art any more but a steward dost thou think because thou art virtuous there shall be no more cakes and ale well the cakes and ale are probably an allusion to something called church ales where parishes used to raise money by selling beer and cakes and puritans of course were dead against this you know this is too much fun you know this is this is uh, not what should be going on in church and feste then comes you know, follows up this line by saying I buy St Anne which is a terribly unpuritan and catholic <laughs> thing to say because you know St Anne's the mother of the blessed virgin you know just the kind of saint that puritans don't want to talk about it uh, keeps it's, it's, it keeps on giving this this play doesn't it i oh, mean it you does. dig into the line yeah. and then you dig further in and further and there's yeah. more meaning to it it's unusual for shakespeare who usually stays away from explicit theological controversy yeah. Is there anything, Emma, is there anything more you want to say about the play of uh, sexuality and gender? Perhaps we could just say that the difficulty we've been having about how we name this page, cross-dress page figure, is not actually a difficulty that you would have if you watched the play. So, for the play, this, uh, a, a woman is uh, shipwrecked, a young woman is shipwrecked, uh, she decides to dress as a, as a man and then we hear a name, Cesario. The, the word Viola is never uttered in the dialogue of the play until the very, very end when she and Sebastian, her twin, are in this very delicate and beautiful dance of recognition, of realising, uh, each realising who the other is. So for the um, majority of the play, until the last ten minutes, uh, that page figure has a name and the name is Cesario. Mm. What seems so prominent to us from reading the play, where the, every speech is prefixed with the name Viola, is much, much less evident, uh, much less evident in the, in the play on the, on the stage. And that makes me wonder whether uh, Viola's male persona isn't much more insistent yeah. than the, 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 the female that we keep seeing underneath yeah. when, it's, when it's being performed. But there's just one other thing. I mean, I think What You Will is a beautifully kind of anything goes <laughs> kind of subtitle. And one area where uh, lots of theatre productions have found uh, some really interesting material is in um, what looks like a same-sex relationship between Antonio and Sebastian. 
So Sebastian is the male uh, twin of Viola. Uh, he has been saved by uh, Antonio and has been. They have been uh, living together for the like many Shakespeare plays. There's a bit of a question about the time scale in their part of the plot for quite a long time, for three months. Uh, and for modern directors, the emotional intensity of that has seemed like a love affair. There's a moment when. Uh, Antonio is left on stage very briefly, has a little tiny moment of soliloquy, and he uh, confirms that he's going to follow Sebastian to Illyria, I- into into the heart of Illyria, even though it's dangerous to him, because I do adore thee so. And adore is a very, very powerful, even in a, even in a time when men would talk freely, male friendship was very highly valued, men would talk about loving each other. Adore is really quite a, quite a strong word there, echoes of that famous line of Andrew Egerduke, I was adored once too. And we know in that context it means romantic love, and perhaps it does here too. So there are lots of ways in which this is a, a cheekily... Um, queer play let's say yeah Mm. one thing to come back to on Cesario is that it's quite surprising for the ending of a Shakespeare comedy that Cesario never stops being Cesario we're told Viola is going to resume female costume but she never does and one of the last things we see in the play is Orsino saying well until such time as you get your clothes back, you know, I'll still call you Cesario. You know, in the future, you will be Orsino's mistress and his fancy's queen. But we don't see that. You know, ever since the first scene in which we saw her, we've only had Cesario. And the plot has to come up with a sort of pretext for Viola not getting her clothes back for the last scene. We're suddenly told out of nowhere that the sea captain's got her dress... But the sea captain has been arrested by Malvolio for for unspecified reasons. So that sort of renormalizing of Viola as a girl doesn't happen in the play. It's it's a a possibility that's put off. Pascal, do you, do you, what would you imagine are the big challenges for directors putting this play on now? Well, obviously, casting is is a really big challenge uh, for directors, and uh, deciding whom to cast in particular in in those um, central roles of uh, Viola and Sebastian, given that the two twins need to look as alike as possible. Um, um, Michael is is not at all agreeing. I completely disagree. I think plays about twins don't work <laughs> if the twins actually look like each other because the audience needs to know which is which. There are some games with one coming on, immediately one of them's gone off. And there are twins plays in which you never see the twins on stage at the same time because they're played by the same actor, like Goldoni's Venetian twins. But Twelfth Night isn't one of them. Um, as long as Viola and Cesario and Sebastian are wearing the same clothes... You know, it works. They don't need to look like each other at all. In fact, it's quite funny if they don't. I suppose that might be um, the case. I mean, we've seen lots of productions, haven't we, mm. where they've tried to make them look alike. And one of the one of the big problems is is precisely uh, in, in the modern day how to uh, get away with casting a woman as Viola and a man as Sebastian because they they will not look alike um and i i just have this 
excruciating memory of being in a student production uh, many, many years ago where Viola was a head shorter than Sebastian. Um, and the, in the recognition scene, um, th there was a lot of sort of tiptoeing and, and, <laughs> and crouching going on. Um, it's, I, I suppose that, that can then be played for laughs. Yeah. But yeah. But it it does make nonsense of of some of the confusion in in the middle of the play, I suppose. Um, only if only if you think of a very kind of photographic realist set of theatrical conventions. Absolutely. I mean, my my daughters are identical twins, and I remember very well the first time we saw Twelfth Night together. And at the end of the show, this was a quite a good production, and the Viola and the Sebastian were of roughly equal build. You know, it was it was fine. It was within the limits of the convention. But at the end of it, you know, one of my daughters said to me, yeah, it's a good play about how stupid singletons are around twins. You know, how, why would they keep making this mistake? It seemed... It seemed you know, an accurate depiction of the readiness of people to, to mix up twins when there's no yeah. need to. No, I, t I totally take that, but at the same time, I'm also wondering whether, um, in in our desire to to give the part of Violet to mm. a female performer, mm. uh, or or somebody who is who who sort of presents as a female performer, we're actually sort of losing some of the nuance of what's going on in the play and the play actually one, one of the key things that it does is that it doesn't just have the ambiguity of gender um, I think the thing that we like to not see because it's disturbing to us today is the ambiguity of age mm -hmm. and the fact mm -hmm. that um, uh, as my colleague Victoria Sperry has, has pointed out these are very very young people Viola and Sebastian are really young characters. They they seem to have been thirteen quite recently. <laughs> it seems to be quite a recent event, and there are the, there are all sorts of allusions to a lack of sexual maturity in both of these characters. They haven't fully gone through puberty. <laughs> they haven't. They 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 are not growing beards anywhere on their bodies, um, and and the, the idea that. Um, Olivia and, and Orsino should be attracted to people that young is one of the things that we like to not see in the play because it, it doesn't mm. sit very comfortably with present day sensibilities. So I think we, you know, one, of the, one of the challenges in casting is, is actually showing the extent to which teenagers are seen as interchangeable. Mm. And mm. as attractive, and as uh, as Viola puts it at one point, a blank onto which you can project whatever you like. Mm. Um, and so I think I think that's a dimension of the play that um, it, it is very very um, uncomfortable to us, but is also something that is worth being aware of. Mm. It hasn't stopped it being amazingly popular <laughs> and uh, and extraordinarily i can't go in much further than that enduring has it hammer it absolutely it absolutely has i think um the sense of it as a as a final comedy has given it a sort of salted caramel kind of version <laughs> of the comic <laughs> genre so so it's not completely saccharine it's not all completely resolved there's a very moment i think about a lot when olivia just says the clock upbraids me with the waste of time mm. you think this is a comedy it's slightly looking at its watch it's a bit mm -hmm. uh 
it, it, it's it's it has got some maturity, some self knowledge to it. So it's a more grown up version, perhaps of of certain kinds of comedy, and that I think that's part of the reason uh, that it's that it's endured. It's it's less silly, yeah, in some really important ways than some of Shakespeare's wonderfully enjoyable. Uh, mm. Comedies, earlier comedies. Yeah, well, the word Chekhovian gets thrown at it a lot in the English performance tradition. Right down the twentieth century, people say, "Ah, oh, Twelfth Night Chekhovian." In fact, there was a famous and very. What fine, do they mean by that? They mean it's got an undertone of melancholy, and as Emma says, of a consciousness that time's passing and that maybe Illyria isn't going to last forever. Never mind these relationships. Certainly, a very famous and very fine production by Sam Mendes at the Donmar Warehouse with Simon Russell Beale as Malvolio. It was cross-cast. The company were doing Uncle Vanya at the same time, and there was a deliberate kind of leakage between the two plays. Um, yeah, the word Chekhovian was used, too, of, of John Barton's famous production at the RSC in 1969, which was in very much Elizabethan costume with Elizabethan music, but there were falling leaves. You know, it deliberately looked autumnal. There were sort of long, melancholy pauses. And it ends, of course, with Feste, with yeah. the rain, it raineth every yeah, day. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you all very much indeed. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Emma Smith, Michael Dobson and Pascal Habisher, and to our studio engineer, Sue Mayo. We'll be back on the 11th of January uh, with Nicolas de Condorcet, known as the last of the French Enlightenment philosophers. Thank you for listening. And the In Our Time podcast gets some extra time now with a few minutes of bonus material from Melvin and his guests. What didn't you say that you'd like to have said, Emma? I um, I really enjoyed thinking where we got to at the end, which was thinking about the performance tradition. That's actually a really... Uh, it would have been great to, to think a bit more about that, um, not least because that's... Uh, well, for both of you, that's that's a that's your thing. I would have loved to have heard more about you, more about that. Um, yeah, I, 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 and I think there are uh, Feste was a character we didn't talk mm. about as much, maybe as mm. we might have done. Um, <coughs> you know, he's a difficult figure to pin down. Often thought to be the perhaps the first outing for Robert Armin, uh, this new comic actor that the Chamberlain's men have got after the departure of Will Kemp who's a more sort of slapsticky maybe kind of comedian Armin seems um, a bit like that uh, who is that famous clown who goes to the doctor and says I'm terribly depressed and the doctor says you should go and see X the clown and he says I am X the clown I can't think who the clown is but uh, you know Feste it could be Feste in, in that so um, it would have been interesting to talk maybe a bit more about, about him what do you think? Yeah, um, more more on staging um, and how the play's changed over the years. How the play changes when suddenly women turn up on stage and, yeah. and Viola becomes the great ingenue role from the 1740s onwards. And, and I left no ring with her. What means this lady? Becomes the great cliche audition piece that everybody... You know, trying to trying to choose actresses is fed up with hearing because so many you know, young hopefuls come into the room and start with "I left no ring with her." What, what means this lady? Do 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 that that and very is that famous because Viola dressed as Cesario can show? Is it true that it's because she can show a lot of leg? Yeah, I mean, it didn't didn't work in the sixteen sixties. You know, it was yeah. a flop when they revived it on Twelfth Night. Peeps goes to see it and says, "Yeah, it's silly. It's got nothing to do with Twelfth Night, mm-hmm. and it's a silly play anyway. It's not it's not a proper realist social social comedy." But it becomes hugely popular in 1741 when Hannah Pritchard and Kitty Clive 
play Olivia and Viola, and they were just fantastic together. I mean, the same season, they made Twelfth Night a hit for the first time since Shakespeare's time. They made Merchant of Venice a hit for the first time since Shakespeare's time as um, Portia and Nerissa, and they made As You Like It a hit for the first time since Shakespeare's time as, as Rosalind and Celia. So they clearly were, were were fantastic together, and the audiences love seeing these two women in in intimate scenes together. Um, it it I mean some of the Illyria stuff surfaces in the performance tradition. Um, some of the sort of political Eastern Mediterranean surfaces around the time of the Napole- Napoleonic Wars, mm. when you get Dorothy Jordan playing Viola in there's that famous portrait of her wearing a kind of Ottoman little yeah. turban as mm. Cesario, and you think, oh yeah, that's 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 the Albania that Byron visited, mm-hmm. you know, that that, you know, that sense of the Levant and the shifting mm-hmm. possibilities of who's in charge uh, in the uh, Eastern Mediterranean now that Venice is collapsing uh, or being extinguished as a republic, you know, it sort of gets into the margins of the play again. But, um, yeah, it's... I'm... I'm very interested in all-male performances. Whether Whether we can revive in the West what all male performances of Twelfth Night were like. I think it's dubious I because don't think we we've can. been corrupted by pantomime. No, 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 I we, mean, that's what drag means very different things for us. I, mean, I think there are fantastic all male Asian performances of Twelfth Night. Brilliant production by Yehangza with a very young cast uh, in uh, Seoul in Korea. It's about, about 10 years ago now. But it's very light, it's very playful, anything can happen in it. It's very bouncy, um, and at the same time, it takes Malvolio seriously. Though because it's a Korean production, in, uh, and it's set in the very early 20th century, instead of being made to wear yellow stockings, uh, he's tricked into wearing red rubber shoes. And that, <laughs> that apparently means roughly the equivalent thing. Yeah, so you know, be well, careful which shoes you wear in so Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, no, I wasn't suggesting that we should go back to, you know, mm. uh, an all-male cast. All, all I'm saying is that it's actually a really difficult yeah. play to cast yeah. and to cast well in such a way that you get that shimmering effect mm. of yes. o- of not knowing potential of of gender identities that that are latent. Yes. Um that is what I'm getting yeah. at and I find that really difficult well you know I, I would be quite interested in seeing a female Sebastian for yeah. example in yeah. order to keep that gender ambiguity going you, you could put it into the other twin yeah. um, there, there have been calls lately for for um, non-binary transgender performers to to take on the part um, I don't know whether that would work um, it it it's very easily then exploited um, in a tokenistic way, mm. but what, what I'm what I'm trying to suggest is that this is actually a really knotty play to cast, mm. knottier than than most um, directors yeah. seem to want to admit. Yeah, and it's difficult to cast Orsino because it's quite hard work as a part. It's a great part, but he vanishes at the end of Act 2 and doesn't turn up again until Act 5. Luke, uh, yeah. I'm coming with a mm. proposition. Would anyone, would anyone like a cup of tea? I'd Ooh, love a cup yes. of tea. Yes, tea. OK, tea. great. Mm. Tea, please. Tea. Mm. Thank you. From fire-breathing dragons to helpful hobs, from mountain-top giants to lock-bound kelpies, 
Mythical creatures are all around us, if we know where to look. Join me, Rihanna Pratchett, on a quest to discover mythical creatures across the British Isles and find out what they reveal about us. A series from BBC Radio 4. Subscribe to Mythical Creatures on BBC Sounds. A web of manipulation and terrifying abuse. If he'd have said to do anything, I would have done it. With a powerful religious figure at its centre. There was no safe place. You don't say no to him. World of Secrets from the BBC World Service is back with a brand new season. Investigating allegations surrounding the preacher, TB Joshua. The culture of secrecy needs to be broken. Search for World of Secrets wherever you get your BBC podcasts.